0: Hello and welcome to J.P. Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the takeaways from our recent Frontier Markets Conference, where J.P. Morgan hosted over 400 participants in the Frontier Markets fixed income space across investors, sovereign and corporate issuers in our London offices. I'm Saad Siddiqui from the Emerging Markets Strategy Team here at J.P. Morgan. And I'm joined today by my colleagues, Ben Ramsey and Ayo Majabi from the EM Strategy Team and Nikolai Alexandru and Katie Marnie from the economic research team. Uh, Welcome to you all, and thanks for joining. Katie, let's start with you to uh, discuss the broader macro backdrop for frontier markets. Clearly there's a lot of investor interest in these markets uh, right now. We could see it from the attendance at our conference, but I think it would be worth getting a quick, uh, broader bird's eye picture about how frontier markets have been faring over the past year or so and how that their macro backdrop has has evolved uh, with a lot of the global uh, factors in play as well as idiosyncratic stories playing
1: out. Sure, Saad, thank you for having me. Um, no, as you said, I mean, I think that, you know, the market conditions are certainly tough for frontier issuers. I mean, we had one panel where we learned that only five percent of hard currency issuance expected this year was going to be from frontier markets um, compared to, you know, other large EMs and and other, you know, sustainable finance solutions, for example. Um, You know, but what we have, I think, is, you know, a a slightly more, um, you know, benign backdrop for frontier markets compared to, say, what we had at the end of last year. Um, so for this, you know, for the second half of the year, we have the EM edge or the frontier economies uh, in our in our JP Morgan universe growing about 3% uh, in the second half. Um, so that's less than EM as a whole. For EM as a whole, we have three and a half, three and a half um, but that's that's still better than many of the larger EM economies. Um, You know, what I would say is that, you know, the drop in oil overall has been uh, more of a help than a harm for Frontier. And why do I say that? Well, you know, we have a lot of importers, um, so oil importers um, that were under distress, were under stress last year um, due to the hike in oil prices. And, you know, that's starting to come off. So when I say, you know, some stories that are less under pressure, I'm talking, you know, Tunisia, Kenya, Pakistan, Egypt, El Salvador, Mongolia, we'll all get some help. Um, I think the ones where, you know, we need to, we need to keep an eye on them just given that they are, you know, more sensitive to oil and they don't have the same level of, um, of say savings or buffers than that other oil countries have would be you know Ecuador, um, Angola, and Nigeria, um, and we can talk about those uh, later in the podcast. Um, you know I, again the rise of the rise of external financing costs is a challenge, and as I said, you know um, you know that the, the outlook really is that we won't have that much um, frontier market um, external issuance this year, um, but but as a result that's actually forcing many of these economies to go to turn to the IMF. Um, And so I think by our last tally, we had about half a frontier um, with IMF programs of some sort. So again, that's an important backstop that mitigates some financing risks um, on top of the fact that current accounts in general are looking better than where they were, you know, this time last year. Um, You know, again, on on monetary policy, um, obviously, we still have some idiosyncratic stories that are hiking. But in general, uh, you know, we already actually have many um, Latin American and uh, European uh, frontier markets already, already cutting rates. Um, you know, they, they started at the end of uh, the first quarter of this year. Um, whereas, you know, in the larger EM economies, you know, we're looking for really like a, a third quarter story. We're looking at things to start now um, and, and the rest of EM of next year. So again, that's, that's just, you know, constructive, constructive um, you know developments on inflation and then also just you know a more benign external backdrop again that's not to minimize the risk for frontier markets i don't want to make it sound like it's it's all rosy i mean these 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 countries are still would still be very exposed particularly in the case of a us recession um but again i think there we need to think about which countries are more exposed to the us versus china um so here you know maybe central america would be more exposed but say you know africa or, or europe may 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 fare slightly differently. Um, so, as I said, I mean, I think that market conditions are tough, but um, you know, investor interest is still there, particularly when it comes to sort of looking for the you know marginal returns um, that um, you know that that frontier markets could offer.
0: So, thank you, Katie, for that overview. Now, while there's a macro adjustment taking place at different speeds. We're also seeing uh, more contrasting and differentiated market performance as well, both across local currency and hard currency. Uh, So Ayo and Ben, I'm going to ask you to kind of unpack some of that uh, differentiated performance across both hard and local currency. So maybe Ayo, let's start with you. Um, You've been talking about how local currency, we've been seeing some better performance this year. Um, what were your main impressions from the, the conference on, on that contrast?
2: Thanks, Sata. Thanks for having me on, on the podcast. Coming into this year, we were we had advocated a, a cautious stance going for frontier markets. You know, we were expecting many of the frontier markets to have a, a challenging time in, in terms of market. Many of these frontier markets are, don't have enough FX buffers. Um, they tend to make policy mistakes and, and keep the exchange rates uh, stable for, for far too long and then have to adjust afterwards. So we, you know, coming to 2023, we had expected any frontier markets to, to have a challenging time in terms of market, and we're advocating a more cautious stance. In the event, you know, frontier market, local markets actually performed quite well. When you compare frontier local market returns in dollar terms relative to their more liquid um, GBIM counterparts. Frontier market actually returned about 6% at the middle part of this year um, compared to about 4% for, for the GBIM, which was you know, better than we had expected. Some of the uh, better performance were, were countries like Sri Lanka. Also, in terms of the positioning, we've seen you know a, a massive reduction in um, non-resident holdings of frontier local markets over the last... 12, 12 months. but again going into this, into this year we expected that to, to continue in, the, in the event we've actually seen a pickup in some of, some frontier markets with, which we can touch on later on. And finally, in terms of frontier market engagement with us, um, we, we, we have our JP Morgan client survey which is a good proxy for how um, willing investors are willing to engage on frontier markets. Again, investor engagement is you no know, relatively off the highs, but we've seen a, a pickup over the next over the last um, couple of months, leading into the into the conference. Um, ben, uh, do you what what what's the situation on on sovereigns? Uh, is it the same trend or is it different?
3: Hi, Ayo. Thanks and thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I think on the hard currency side, we've really been looking at how we would describe it as a bifurcated market. Um, when we look at the MB spread, which is currently around 440 basis points, we've never seen uh, a wider differential, at least not for a very long period of time between the investment grade component of that spread, which is currently at about 135 basis points down from a peak of close to around 160. So an important rally, uh, but 25 basis points rally. Compared to the high yield portion portion of uh, the MV Global Diversified, which is currently trading around 825 basis points, uh, and that's more than 100 basis points down from the peak of around 940, which took place right after the market stress around the uh, the banking um, banking pressure in the U S. Back in March, so if we think about what's really you know in in those components, it's it is a largely a frontier um, population which is in the high yield component of of that spread, and certainly we've seen uh, a rally and a rally which has accelerated in the really even in the weeks since the conference um, when we've had some, some uh, uncertainties resolved, particularly let's say the debt ceiling uh, in the U.S. So I would say uh the we've been in this context of a bifurcated market we've been discussing sort of uh a richness overall of a lot of the performing mb global um and and, uh uh, the where you have more attractive valuations um it's been in that either you know double b or also even more, more so the distressed space a lot of that is frontier a lot of that are countries which are Facing restructuring uh, or have already defaulted, uh, you know have defaulted and are, are are getting into restructurings or are absent market access and maybe facing restructurings. And I'd say in the last weeks in particular, we've had seen some uh, better tone and and that part of of the asset class uh, leading to better performance.
0: Thanks, Ben. So a clear contrast between local and, and hard currency. Uh, which has taken shape this year. Before we move on to discussing individual countries, just a quick one for you, Katie. There was um, a session that we had on sustainable finance. That's clearly becoming uh, an ever more popular topic. What were your main impressions from that?
1: Thank you, Saad, again. So, I mean, I think that, you know, on the... on. So on sustainable finance, I mean that the main the main takeaway was that there, you know, there still is, um, you know, significant investor interest. I mean, earlier I I, I gave that statistic that only five percent of um, issuance was expected to be frontier markets, for sustainable finance, um, such as you know, labeled bonds like blue or or green, um, aimed at conservation. Uh, you know, the 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 number was close to 25%. Uh, that includes the larger economies like Chile and, and others, but um, just to say that there remains interest. Um, but again, it, what is what was interesting that it doesn't appear as though, you know, those types of um, labeled bonds are actually migrating down the ratings scale, meaning you know, to many of these frontier markets who would be most in need. Um, and, you know, why is that? Part of it is just the macro conditions. Again, it's just challenging for frontiers in general, but also, um, you know, investors are learning that this isn't a simple solution to a complex problem. Um, you know, they're learning that, you know, c- tracking use of proceeds is complicated, tracking, you know, judging credit risk for these types of instruments is more complicated. So, you know, there's, there's been an evolution. But again, in, especially for, you know, for, 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 for investors in EMEA, um, kind of ESG has a becoming a requirement to their investment decisions rather than a positive add-on. Um, so, so so, that was an interesting takeaway for me on, on sort of the, the sustainable finance ESG side of things.
0: Thanks, Katie. So pivoting to individual country stories because frontier markets really are all about being in the weeds. Uh, Nikolai, uh, we had a Ukraine session that's always extremely well attended. What were your main takeaways from that? Well, thanks,
4: Sad, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, look, on Ukraine... Uh, I would say things are a bit more complicated than elsewhere, right? Because um, it's a country at war, but there are several takeaways which I think are uh, relevant uh, for uh, for the audience. One is about the resilience of the Ukrainian economy, right? I mean, this is a war which is absolutely severe in terms of its impact on uh, life, on people, and um, uh, the economy. But this economy managed to actually uh, drop, let's say, only 29 percent last year, uh, as opposed to expectations that were around minus 40 uh, at the start of the war and some uh, even uh, worse than that. So that's one thing. Then if you look also at the dollar GDP, uh, there were expectations that the dollar GDP, the value of the dollar GDP is going to go down well below uh, 100 billion dollars from 180 uh in the direction of even like uh, uh something like 50 or 60 billion dollars in the end it was about 160 billion dollar uh economy uh despite the war so that's one aspect the other aspect linked to this resilience is that the economy is growing uh and um it's it's growing because uh, businesses are recovering uh because consumers uh, are recovering uh with um, uh, Ukrainians coming back. Uh, the other one is really about the challenge that uh, Ukrainian economy is facing. Right, it's a, an economy at war with uh, massive expenditure on the military, with uh, massive budget deficit, which required funding. Uh, that funding mostly comes from uh, foreign donors, uh, and that's important to uh, to bear in mind. And and final point I would make, which is uh, a bit more uh, market relevant, it's about uh debt restructuring. Uh authorities under IMF have announced uh that there is going to be a debt restructuring um early next year. Uh, but as I said, I mean the economy is performing better than expected. So uh this debt restructuring it's probably going to be somewhat different than let's say other uh debt restructuring uh, uh, events uh under IMF why because it's, it's not that obvious, uh, that Ukraine, uh, will be facing a serious, uh, the sustainability issues and, and the service, uh, given support it has from, uh, foreign donors. It's, um, uh, also significantly improved the direction of, uh, of our payments. The final point before we move, uh, uh, to another country, it's about the EU path. Ukraine has chosen this path. It's being supported more strongly. And this is something that many, investors that I had conversations with highlighted when it comes to uh medium to long-term uh, outlook for Ukraine, right? I mean, you, the, the EU path, it's something which is, uh, quite encouraging.
0: Thank you, Nikolai. We also had sessions on Africa. The tagline from there was it's stressed, but not all distressed. What do you have to say about the sub-Saharan African space, Nikolai?
4: Yeah. I mean, um, when, um, you know, Katie and I write on the edge, uh, I mean, we many times we end up, you know, talking uh, a bit more about uh, two parts of uh, the uh, edge space, which uh, is uh, Asia uh, and Africa. Uh, investors, I would say, uh, were quite focused um, um, in Africa about a positive name rather than than a negative name. Um, and that's Nigeria. Uh, reforms are being implemented in nigeria uh, on the uh, fiscal policy side uh, on the exchange rate side very mind this is a country which has had and i think i can safely say this uh, most amount of restrictions uh, either in the economy or in markets that i know in um, in um, the frontier space right so quite a lot of restrictions and some of those are being uh, uh, eliminated some are being uh, um uh, let's say adjusted uh, but i think it's important to highlight uh, that policymakers are taking the the right steps uh, and um, that was uh, i would say uh, highly appreciated uh, by by the investors there are also some challenging uh, challenges in in uh, sub saharan africa space um the views were not uh, let's say fully upbeat in the case of ghana i mean there were some Uh, some concerns that I heard uh, from some investors uh, mainly about the extent and uh, credibility of the fiscal adjustment post restructuring but that remains to be seen Uh, so far uh, I would say uh, the story uh, seems to be uh, going well and also another one is is uh, Kenya where uh, uh, probably uh, it's fair to say that uh, uh, there's a bit more negativity in the market even though Kenya enjoys very strong support from multilaterals and that negativity, it's mainly uh, oriented around uh, uh, the large uh, external funding needs. And that's all in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa space.
0: Thank you, Nikolai. So let me just, that's a nice segue. You mentioned Nigeria. Uh, that's where we've seen a lot of currency action, Well, there's two other markets. Um, that investors have been talking about quite a lot with regards to the FX, and that's Egypt and Pakistan. Ayo, would you like to add anything on those two uh, markets in terms of what investors were thinking? Um, you know, we did have some panels where, where they were brought up and also Nigeria as well, if you'd like to add anything there.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Sir. I mean, on, on on Nigeria, I think um, I would echo Nicola's sentiment about both the investor feedback uh, at the conference, but also uh, the Nigeria panel at, at the conference. It's probably one of the more most positive um, country panels that, that I've uh, experienced in, in a long time at, at any of our, our conferences. You know the, the panelists were quite strong in their conviction that this government was different in execution um, and that you know, the, the authorities Listen to market participants and are willing to implement um, what the, the market participants feel is is right. And um, there were some risks um, that were highlighted with regards to Nigeria. One is um, social risks um, around you know, how much the population can t- can take in terms of reforms. Um, higher. Petrol prices and effects exchange rate means higher inflation. Um, investors seem to take comfort from the fact that till now um, there's been a very muted reaction on on, this, on the social unrest side, and then also legal risk around election uh, election challenges, which again is an unresolved situation as of now. But overall, um, I agree with Nikolai that Nigeria was you know, by far the standout positive story at the conference. You mentioned Egypt and Pakistan, less positive um, reaction to to both. There was a sense that in Egypt there may be some level of reform fatigue by the authorities. Egyptian authorities have allowed the exchange rate um, to adjust significantly over the last 12 months. That hasn't um, led to much in, in terms of um, an adjustment in their external balances, but also more importantly, is they've not been able to implement um, actual structural reforms that improves governance, um, reduces the role of the state in, in in the economy, and also they've not been able to conclude a number of a number of um, reform and privatization um, agreements that they had um, promised um to to engage in as part of the IMF program. So there was a, a sense of frustration um about Egypt's local markets not being really open for investors to 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 invest in. And and actually there were questions about you know, um, the the risk of uh, domestic debt restructuring um in, in Egypt further down the line, even though it's not something that investors are I would say are, are, are focusing on right now. In Pakistan, um, similar situation to to Egypt in terms of engagement with with the IMF, Um, a lot of questions uh, from investors and also um, at at, at a specific panel talking about Pakistan uh, elections that are scheduled for in in a couple of months. That seems to be the major um, hurdle that needs to be passed um, investor sentiment improves. Um, also, there's a bigger question about um, debt sustainability um, in, in in Pakistan and, and the ability for authorities to to uh, make payments on on their obligations that are coming due. And and finally, on you know, central bank um, policies. So the State Bank of Pakistan uh, at the time was being seen as um, having strong restrictions in place. For, um, to limit uh, import and its impact on, on, on FX. Some of those have since been um, rolled back, at least uh, on, on paper, um, but those were some of the concerns that I suspect uh, is keeping investors away from, from broke countries um, local markets at the moment.
0: Thank you, Io. Uh, and then let's now address, I guess the biggest elephant topic in the room, and that is uh, the sovereign debt restructuring Architecture, Ben. You were you hosted a panel on that topic. Um, clearly, since then, there's been a Paris conference. There's been um, some, you know, breakthrough in the case of Zambia as well. Where do we stand in terms of the so- the new sovereign debt restructuring discussions that are taking place?
3: Thanks, Saad. Yeah, there's been a lot uh, to discuss on this front, and and in fact, we we recorded uh, another podcast on this at any rate channel, which we uh, welcome our listeners, listeners to, to, to take a look for, uh, and we had published a, a rather larger re- report on the subject right uh, ahead of the conference. And in the session, we tried to have some representation of different views from uh, folks that have been in the official sector or in the official sector that are advising sovereign debtors, that are advising private creditors. So we, we had a host of different views. I'd say there was some things that could be agreed upon. Certainly, there's an agreement that more transparency should be a goal in the process, uh, an agreement that uh, even beyond you know, these what might be a, even a wave of restructurings, uh, there needs to be a way to continue to channel flows for development and climate change goals even if for some countries markets may be closed indefinitely, so I think there was sort of in terms of broadly framing the discussion, those those goals could be agreed upon. Uh, even if in practice, even particularly the transparency one remains, uh, I think a hurdle, and, and that can even be seen to some degree in in, in the, the latest developments that have come out of uh, out of Paris. Um, I'd say that there are some actors in the system, uh, including let's say non traditional Paris club, non Paris club. Uh, a bilateral creditors, China is prominent here, uh, but even some of the, I'd say some of the sovereign debtor countries, private creditors are willing, have been willing to challenge some of the multilaterals, sacred cows here. And one of the most prominent examples here is the preferred creditor status of the IMF and the World Bank. Multilaterals, even the tone in, the, in our session, they're not really interested in having that conversation. I think what, as we've seen you know, in the last weeks, even this issue with Zambia it looks like the in the conversations that have taken place at the Global Summit Debt Roundtable, uh, there's a general understanding, I think, of why the preferred creditor status is there for the IMF. So I think we've kind of moved a bit beyond that talking point. Um, I'd say private creditors have been frustrated that they've been stuck at a you know stuck in a roadblock here that's been effectively the official sector trying to figure out how to restructure their debts um and there's a sense that private sectors are willing to engage and move forward um but you know again they've been kept waiting particularly by the comment framework um there's been some ideas put forward like a most favored creditor clause that could be kind of trying to force the hand of the official sector basically saying like private sector would restructure and uh, that, that no one would be able to then accept better terms sort of a reverse comparability of treatment Um, That, you know, remains to be seen, you know, now that we're starting to get some official sector workouts move forward, how these private sector deals will will, will in fact uh, go ahead. I'm not sure we'll get this most favored creditor clause. Um, And then I'd say, you know, there was discussion around uh, this willingness to consider um, experimenting with statutory reform, like the proposals that have been put forward, for example, in the New York State Assembly, to change New York law, which you know, New York, of course, is a jurisdiction for uh, around half of uh, sovereign bonds that are issued by emerging market countries, including you know, frontier nations. Um, I'd say the representative, representatives of uh, private creditors. Uh, I, I think even you know the, the stance we would take, we we think that these these initiatives would be questionable in terms of their effectiveness, in terms of the end goal of having you know, improving restructuring outcomes, and there's risks that they could be. Uh, ultimately counterproductive so those i think were the main talking points but again in practice we've started to see we've started to see some uh you know some some forward progress as as was mentioned for out of the paris conference uh, and with zambia Uh, i would just say on this front what looks to be the major breakthrough um again in part this not the, the the no longer insisting that there would be haircuts from let's say the IMF or traditional um, multilateral official creditors um, and the, both the Paris club and non-traditional uh, non-Paris club bilateral lenders like China uh, coming to terms in terms of maturity extensions, um, which are, look like they're, they're going to be quite spread out, um, quite low interest rates in a base case scenario. But I think the main uh, development here in terms of breakthrough is this idea that at the official sector there can be a state contingent outcome whereby if the macroeconomic fundamentals of the restructured country improve over some period of time that there can be basically better recovery uh and that there there can be in in the case of zambia this is going to be based on whether or not uh the country is deemed to be still uh only having a low capacity to carry debt in terms of the world banks framework or a medium Capacity to carry debt, but if there is that upgrade, there could be improved terms in terms of uh, higher coupons on the restructured debt uh, and uh, a shorter and more anticipated repayment period. So basically, there would be the, the the creditors would be able to share in that macro better macroeconomic scenario. My expectation is now that we turn to private restructurings, there will be in the spirit of comparability of treatment probably some uh, efforts to also offer uh, these types of state contingent. Value recovery instruments in those restructurings uh, as well, but uh, Io, perhaps you'd like to, to add a little bit some of your thoughts as you uh, look at this, you know, the specific
2: cases of Zambia or or, or Ghana about to come. Yeah, sure. Just quick quickly on my side, um, Ben. I agree with with you in terms of the, the the specific breakthroughs that that this Zambia deal seems to have uh, seems to have um, brought with us. I, I think you know the market reaction, especially with with Ghana. Is quite instructive clearly the market is expecting that with with this happening with zambia it could be we could see a a number of um, countries follow suit um and and ghana seems to be the 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 next um, country in line um within the lower income um bracket i I think the the situation in 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 ghana is slightly different in that while while zambia didn't include domestic debt um ghana did include um, domestic debt. Um, within its overall, it's, its overall debt restructuring framework. So it, it does still feel like there's still uh, a case by case situation going on, rather than you know a common framework um prescribing a specific process for all all, all sovereigns. And I, I I do expect that that's that's the way um this situation will will continue to unfold in, in coming months.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, Io and Ben, for your insights there. That brings us to the end of this JP Morgan, at any rate, Frontier Markets podcast. Thank you to Ben, Io, Katie, and Nikolai for joining today. And thank you all for listening. We hope to have you back again with us for more of these podcasts. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information including important disclosures. twenty twenty three, JP Morgan Chase and Company All Rights Reserved. This episode was recorded on the twenty seventh of june twenty twenty three.